Welcome back to the Mindful You podcast. I'm Alan Carroll. I am your host. And today's guest, Dr. Barbara D'Amato. She has spent most of her life pursuing the psychoanalytic path journey works at the graduate school faculty in New York City for the study of and practice of psychoanalytic psychology, which would be from the Freudian roots, the id, the ego, the superego. And so she has been teaching others, psychoanalytic people. She has her own practice. And what I really enjoyed about our conversation today was all the similarities between the mindfulness, presence, managing the thoughts, decreasing suffering, and the work that she does in the psychoanalytic field of the body and the relaxing and the mindfulness and the managing of the thoughts and what you think and what you project out into the world are the same thing. And it was a delight just having her share her years of wisdom, the clarity of her message. Very, very, very nice. So I'm excited to bring with you today, Dr. Barbara D'Amato, and please welcome her to the Mindful You podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dr. Barbara D'Amato, welcome to the Mindful You podcast. I'm pleasure to be here. Well, it's a it's a privilege to have you, and I'm really excited because you have journeyed down a pathway uh, in the psychological field, mm -hmm. and uh, I've been journeying down a pathway in the psychological field, and it looks as though they are actually psychoanalysis and mindfulness and presence and being and being in the moment are connected. Absolutely, so I would I would love for you. Uh, to first of all, a little bit of your background and a little bit of a layman's definition of psychoanalysis, and then we'll bring up mindfulness and see how the two are related and how we can achieve a, a greater sense of, I'll call it consciousness, okay. uh, to be present in the moment. Okay. So please share with us a little bit of your background and a little bit of understanding of psychoanalytic theory. Okay, well, to go way, way back, I actually started my career as a special education teacher. Ah. And when I was working with in special education, our smaller classrooms with kids with sort of behavioral problems. Yep. So when I was working with these kids, I realized that so many of them were really smart kids. Like, why are these kids here? So over time, I learned that they had so much emotional baggage from home that they didn't have people helping them to study or helping them to, to get to school on time. So all of that impeded their ability to learn. And in the, in the larger mainstream classrooms, the teacher's like, oh, get this troublemaker out of here. Send right. them to special ed. He's a perfect, most of them were perfectly smart kids. 
So I started to become very, very interested in their emotional lives, which was much more intriguing than teaching them reading and math. So I started to study at a psychoanalytic institute. I wanted first to be a child analyst. But as you know, as time went on, I had adult clients and it went on and on and on. And I just became a regular analyst for all groups of people. I worked with all ages, all groups, couples, etc. And the thing about psychoanalysis is that it's very broad. The technique is very open. And it's really called the talking cure for that reason. The patient comes in and the analyst doesn't lead. These are the goals we're working on. This is what you have to do. The analyst really follows where the patient wants to go, what the patient's ready to talk about. Most people will come in. I had a wonderful childhood. And then three or four years in, we start to peel back what their childhood was really like and what they're carrying and what's getting in their way. Sure. So psychoanalysis helps people to sort of peel off these protective layers or defenses they've built up to get to the real person who they really are. So in connection with mindfulness, mindfulness to live in the moment as who they are and not to keep living with the demons that they grew up with, that they're carrying, that they keep finding in the world today that are not really there. They're kind of living inside of them. So psychoanalysis, I think, it, from the way I understand it and the way I practice it, is to help be people be who they are today, to, to resolve what happened when they were growing up, and to be more present with who they are today. And it's very simplified, very simplified. Right, right. The concept of the demons within mm-hmm. are then projected out. Correct. And my understanding is that if you wanted to handle the demons without, they're like illusions created by the thoughts within. And you're saying by the talk therapy of releasing the pressure, I'll use pressure. So I like that one releases the pressure that allows a fluidity and a cleansing and a cleaning and a, an aeration and an openness and a purging of something. Uh, and then once we've purged, what's, what do people often discover uh, when they have tasted that space of less, re- less repression and more openness? It's a good question. I think what really happens for most people is their behavior starts to change. Their behavior in response to other people starts to change. They're not responding to, say, their boss, who's very strict, and they hate this woman because the woman acts just like their mother did. And the, re- and the relationship is already now antagonistic. Over time, they start to realize this woman is asking me to do something different. It has nothing to do with how cruel my mother was. This woman is just sort of tapping into a sensitivity I have. So if they can see that, they can respond differently to this boss and make that relationship less antagonistic and use that energy for something more productive somewhere else. You say the words, Barbara, they have to see. Uh, They have to become aware. They have to become more conscious of, I'll call it the internal world. Is that what you're saying? Or their internalized objects, the parents as the objects that they're carrying inside of them. Yeah. And I I think of the word in, in 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 mindfulness, we have this sort of level you achieve of awareness called the observer. Or mm-hmm. the witness, or the 
uh, let's see, observer, witness. There's another one, but I can't think of it right now. But it's the ability to be able to see something and not get hooked by what you see. For example, thoughts. You're having thoughts about my mother, having thoughts about the horrible things that happened to me, and being able to notice, oh, I have these thoughts. Okay, good, good. And but not be seduced, right, by by the thoughts, which right. leads to which leads to that which you mentioned also the the difference between responding. Let's talk about the difference between responding to the event that's happening in front of you versus reacting to the event that's happening in front of you. Take right. take that one for a ride. This is a very painful and difficult process to get a person from point A where they're projecting to point B where they're saying, oh, wait, this is reminding me of my mother. I'm having a really bad feeling, but Mrs. So-and-so is not really my mother. Right. Process works according to Freud. Now, we uh, we study many, many other um, analysts besides Freud today. Modern uh, analysis is much more eclectic. We don't just rely on Freud, but Freud was the pioneer and his idea is one called transference where the patient will ultimately, in treatment, project that bad, those bad internal objects onto the analyst. And that's where it gets resolved. The patient starts to believe the analyst is that bad mother. You're treating me so meanly. You're doing this, you're doing that. So the analyst then responds differently than the mother did. The mother's like, go to bed. I'm going to beat you. The analyst says, tell me. Tell me how I hurt you. Tell me what I did when I said that. And over time, repeated, repeated, repeated incidents like this, the patient starts to say, yeah, you're really not like my mother. You really are a nicer person. This is not an easy one-time snap. This takes years of building up trust with the patient, years of the patient being brave enough to say, you are really being mean to me, which is very hard for patients to do until they know you. That's the thing that cures. Well, cure is a strange word. That's the thing that helps the patient see. I'm bringing this to myself. I'm carrying this and it's holding me back. I have to see the world more clearly. It's a very long process. And if I can see the world more clearly, then my ability to make appropriate choices based on the observation without the distortion of the past in front of my eyes gets better and better and better probably. And better for the person. The person makes better, better choices. The The internal feelings never go away. Patients will say to me, when is that person going to stop reminding me of my mother? Probably never. But you're going to know there's a difference. That's the thing that's going to change. The feeling may remain the same, but your behavior, you now have control over this feeling and you can change your behavior. And and that is a big step. In huge, the- huge. Big step. Big, big step and takes big, a lot big, of big trust, yeah, a I, lot of work from both parties to tolerate because very bad feelings have to come up in order to get past them. And and the and and, and to get past the bad feelings, there's something and you're going to have to take me because you're more professional than I am. But as far as the ego, I, I look at the ego as your conceptual identity made up of all the concepts you consider yourself to be Uh and put a circle around that, put Barbara up on top. And that's your ego. And that's your conceptual identity. Uh And the purpose of the mind is the survival of the things you've identified yourself to be. So if I've identified myself to be a victim for me to let go of being a victim is somehow psychologically, I use the word suicide. 
I'm giving right. up something that I consider myself to be. And so I'm I'm holding on. Absolutely. So I'm holding on. No, that's not the no. I'm really holding on to something. We call that resistance. <laughs> the patient is comfortable in their suffering because it's familiar. Decades and decades and decades, they've been holding on to this image that you've just described. So that's where it's very, very difficult. And it's painful. The patient will be frightened to let go of being a victim if that were the case. Right. Boy, that's a, that, it, it's so valuable to, to say it again, because it's, a, it's really valuable for people to hear. I, I can give you an example from my novel. There's a character in the novel who- A new been, novel that's coming out? My new novel is coming out, Triscale. Triscale, wonderful. There's, a, there's, a, there's a character in, this, in the novel who's been abandoned early, early in life, sexually abused, pushed around from foster care to foster care. Now she's a very promiscuous artist who gets herself in all sorts of trouble. She gets um, ordered to be in therapy. The therapist is a psychoanalyst. So she's something. there's some connection that happens. She likes this analyst. She's different than the other social workers she's been to who say, you have to do this, you have to do that. This person's just there to listen to her. So they make a connection. And over time, she starts to report what has happened to her, particularly people who've been sexually abused. It's very hard for them to talk about it. They, they, they blame themselves. They feel tremendous shame. So eventually she gets there and she starts to talk about it. And then she starts accusing the analyst of wanting to abuse her. So in this process, the analyst sort of accepts that and says, of course, I would never do that to you, but blah, 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 blah. And in that process, the patient's ego, as you described, her sense of agency gets stronger. So that's kind of an example of what happens. The patient has to relive the trauma, the emotionality of it in the room with the analyst in order for them to work through it together. And it's not, not an easy thing to do. And patients will spend years avoiding it. And the analyst doesn't push them until they're ready. Because if you push them, they'll leave. They'll just leave treatment. People who are not able to do the psychoanalysis in the four or five years and, and even, you know, people who can't really do a lot of mindfulness work, what are some of the things that you would say, you know, if there's one or two things you become more aware of, it probably would reduce a lot of the discomfort that you are experiencing in, the, in your reality? Oh, that happens all the time. I think the fact of going to a therapist of any modality and being listened to is the most therapeutic thing that can happen to anyone. Because most kids have not had the experience they were deeply, deeply listened to. And for parents, sometimes you can't. you got a number of kids, you're busy, you're working, you're a single mom. You can't sit down and have deep, deep conversations with your kid. So that I think therapy is an enormous gift. And it's ego building. For someone to speak about whatever they want every single week and someone listens and kind of asks you questions like they're interested in the most boring thing you might talk about, that in and of itself is curative. And as people get stronger, then they're able over time to look at the more difficult things. What comes to mind is a quote from Eckhart Tolle. And he's written several books, Power of the Now being the, the largest one. And he talks about the greatest gift mm -hmm. that you can give another human being is mm -hmm. to listen. Absolutely. To what they have to say. Absolutely. And, and it seems like, well, 
Yeah, but when you actually look at people's conversations, there's not a lot of listening go- going on. <laughs> and when you can be when you can be practicing listening, and 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 listening to me is that there's a distinction between agreeing with what the person's saying and allowing what the person's saying to exist. Right. And most people, my observation, Barbara, uh, think listening has something to do with oh, I have to agree with what you're saying. Um, mm-hmm. And I can't open up to include something that's a threat to my identity. Uh, so I have to resist it. Whereas a therapist, I, I suspect uh, you are definitely you're in the you you allow whatever they say to exist uh, without Absolutely. judging it. Is that Absolutely. Is it, talk about that a little bit, being able to 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 listen without judging. That's a hard thing to do. And I, I supervise uh, young analysts who are starting, just starting to practice, and they get very caught up in this moral question. If the patient wants to do something that doesn't sort of meet their register of what's good and bad, they want to intervene because they think that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So that's a very hard thing to learn to do. Person wants to divorce their husband. That's up to them. You can explore why and what they want to do afterwards, but you can't really have a position. And that's a very hard thing for analysts to learn, to just let the patient talk to you. But shouldn't I be helping them stay with their husband? No, the patient has to decide for themselves if they want to remain married or not. The only time the analyst ever has to intervene in a moral way is if the patient is suicidal or actively homicidal. If they're going to hurt somebody or hurt themselves, then the analyst has to say, I need to call 911. We can't do this. That's the only, only time. And that's a way, way rarity that hardly ever, ever happens. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, I I find that uh, uh, when I did my therapy work with with children and in public schools, I was part of the special education team. So how you doing? Uh, <laughs> you were part of that I team. I knew I liked you. <laughs> part of that team. And uh, they... Uh, we we always we always enjoyed uh, the opportunity to talk to the parents. Mm-hmm. Most of the teachers were afraid to talk to the parents, mm-hmm. and I would I you know I would just listen. I would just because the child had some results on a test, and I had to deliver the news about the test, mm-hmm. especially the psychological test, the intelligence test, the Bender test, those type of tests. And all I and and all I was able to do because I wasn't married, I had no children. So what am I doing family therapy for? But I just could listen. Mm-hmm. I just listened, and boy, you could see the. Finally, somebody has heard the, and it's. It, it, I remember my mother had a, a pressure cooker, and it was a pot with a pressure thing on top of it. And she cooked. I forget what she'd cook it into, but but it, but to release the pressure, you hear a. And the pressure is released. Right. It, it, it's almost like you see listening seems to release a pressure. Right. And, and boy, that is so important. So, so important. And, and I just I hope people are listening to our conversation and just look at the possibility of I- I- increasing your listening statistic. Uh, yeah, to just, be listened to be listened to. I mean, Anna O oh was the first uh, psychoanalytic patient, and she talked about the power of. She called it chimney sweeping, that she could just talk what she could release to a person who wasn't judging, who wasn't condemning, who wasn't directing, just listening. Just let that steam out, so you don't blow up. 
because there's a lot of things in life that can cause us to have steam, <laughs> plus the stuff we're carrying. You also mentioned the word position. Uh, you come into the conversation and there's an event happening in front of you and automatically, based on your history, you got a position. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and so one has to become aware uh, of one's position. Yes. No. Absolutely. Psychoanalysts have to remain in supervision and psychoanalysis themselves. Most of them do this throughout their life. Because the patient will arouse your position, but she's doing this to her fa- her father and blah blah blah. They so the analyst himself has to release the steam to their supervisor and their analyst, so they can back can go back to the patient and be neutral. That's the patient's steam. Let it come out. You don't have to direct it or close it down or do anything like that. So the process it stirs emotion in everybody. Yeah, I love the word neutral. Uh, yeah. Neutral is that you are able to be present. The observer is neutral. The witness right. is is neutral, does not have a position about what they see. It's right. just thoughts passing through their mind. Passing but you, through but as you said, humans do have a position. So the analyst has to be trained. Keep that to yourself. You may have you may have your feeling that you don't like what the patient is doing. Keep that to yourself. It doesn't help the treatment. It doesn't advance the case. That's the hard part for people who are in training, to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Uh, the uh, Going into the mindfulness conversation, mm-hmm. one of the major ways of achieving mindfulness is an eyes closed, relax your body, become still time during the day. They call it a practice. Mm-hmm. Any practice. You talked about different paths of psychology, different ways of exploring it. But mindfulness is the same thing. There's lots of people have lots of different definitions of it. But becoming still. Yeah. Once a day. I, I use the I'll just show it to you. I, I people get at get, get agitated. I'm holding up a bottle with with uh, silver things inside. And, and be, but when you become still, everything becomes clear. But you settle down. So I'm a big fan of how you're going to manage your position. Well, your position is stirred up of thoughts. Can you spend some time during the day just with eyes closed? Is that part of the approach that you use? It's interesting. The more you talk, the more similarities I see between mindfulness and psychoanalysis. The classic psychoanalyst, and I'm, I'm not a Freudian psychoanalyst. I've studied Freud and I use his ideas, use the couch. The psychoanalytic couch. I mean, you see the Woody Allen movies and everybody laughs at it, but psychoanalysts use the couch. The patient reclines on the couch. They're still. The musculature is at ease. There's no movement except to, they're in, and they're facing away from the analyst. So whatever my facial expressions are when they're telling me, I did this and I stole a, pa- a pack of gum and I'm going to steal some cookies. You don't, they don't see my face and I don't have to see them. And they're just sort of centered on their thoughts that they're putting into words only. So yes, lying on the couch makes the nervous system still, there's no movement, there's no distraction, quiet, and let's talk. That's great. That's great. I I never looked at it that way. You always see the pictures in Hollywood of the person on the couch. Right. Don't realize there's a reason. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) 
Because <laughs> patients like will that. project onto your face. Oh, you're mad now when you're not because they're carrying these projections. So if that's removed, they can talk more freely about what's going on inside. That's great. I like the idea of, of becoming uh, no vibration stillness is like no vibration. There's no there's no agitation. Right. And so you are relaxed. And when you relax, it releases tension. When you release tension, it opens up the orifice, the holes become bigger. And there's a flow that would not be available if you were constricted. Right. And so part of the theory is if you can unconstrict your physical body, it helps the flow of thoughts and access to that unconscious mind. Absolutely. Because when you're sitting up looking at someone, it's much more conversational. You're not going in deeper. You're kind of thinking of the next way to connect. So when that's removed, the person really has to go deeper. And people resist that, too. Oh, I don't I don't want to use I won't be able to see you. That's the point. (laughs) That's wonderful. Boy, I'm really excited that they're it's a you're sharing things that are are similar, similar to the to the idea of mindfulness and the idea of becoming present in right. mindfulness, they'll call it the ability to become aware of the voice inside your head is not who you are. Right. It, it's that that voice is the past conditioning, uh, judging and evaluating, telling you what's so interpreting everything that you see. And but as I become more present, as I become more mindful and I, I realize that, oh, that's like a tape inside me it's like a right. tape from from the past and right. I, I i love closing my eyes and relaxing my body and becoming aware of any tension any tension at all with my body and stored up tightness mm-hmm. and do what i can to relax the tension in my body which forces me to direct my attention from the thoughts that i'm thinking to the physical body that is that is the thoughts are bubbling up from. Right. It removes your, your mind from that tape that plays that this is happening because of this reason when, when it's not something else might be happening. Yeah. And that starts building up that observer, uh, the witness uh, part, part of you, which is that big step that we, that we talked about. Right. I, a couple of questions that I, I, I would love to hear you explain uh, uh, we have the word it, mm-hmm. we have the word ego, mm-hmm. and we have the word super ego. <laughs> yes. And, and when I did my Freudian work, boy, that was, that was the big thing. Boy, if you understood something about that, you pretty much understood what the guy was talking about. I, I would love to hear you briefly just define the three so people, if sure. they ever hear about those words, they have some idea of what it is. Sure. There's, I mean, there's a number of theories of the mind, and this was one of Freud's theories, and some people reject it, and some people like it, some people use parts of it, but I think the words are useful. I think Freud understood the id as that sort of unconscious, smoldering drives and passions. We all want to eat good food. We want to sometimes hurt people who hurt us. We want to sort of have sex with a lot of people. That sort of pushing drive. And the ego develops as the child start, as the infant starts to grow and the mother starts to help the child know what their feelings are. Baby's crying. Mommy's like, you're tired. You're hungry. So the child then starts to be able to identify its feelings. So the ego is now the sort of the reality, which is in touch with reality. You really want to eat all that cake, but you shouldn't because you'll feel sick. So that 
the id has to slow down. I can't eat all that cake because it'll make me sick. So it's putting a, a rain on the on the id a little bit? Yes, absolutely. Because the id has no rain. The id wants what it wants when it wants it. I'm mad. I'm going to punch that person. Whoa. But if you punch that person, they might call the police. You could end up in jail. So the ego sort of um, mitigates. Okay. The superego is develops around the parents, the morality and the judgment and the right and wrong of the parents that gets interjected. You can't run across the street, Jimmy. You can't do that. So eventually the kid tells himself, you can't run across the street when the cars are coming. So that's the superego. Now that can become too severe. That can become too loose. So the ego is sort of mitigating between the super, the superego that's saying no and the other saying, yes, yes, yes. The ego's like, well, then there's reality. <laughs> what, is it better to do no right now and wait? Or is it better to do yes and maybe get really big, big trouble? <laughs> so that's the way these three, on a very simple, basic level, Wonderful. These, I, I, these three levels interact. <laughs> so the super ego uh, is the, uh, uh, one of the ways I look at it is everybody is different because everybody was raised in a different garden. Right. And so the fruit of your tree, same family, but I don't care. It's a different garden because you got different experiences. Mm -hmm. And to me, the primary programmers of of that superego, uh, if I remember correctly, was was the mother. And then the father would be number two. Right. Uh, and and so is that true? Is is the it's the is the moral? You no, know, you should not do that because right. that comes from the grandmother probably. Um, and the grandmother's grandmother thing is passing down from generation right. to generation. Right. But I know it's true. I don't know if it's true. So how do you become, this? once again, you become aware of the thoughts and you realize, oh, that was a thought my mother told me. Oh, may be true, may not be true. Oh. Right. I'm, I'm more observing what's going on rather than I'm living my life by what my mother said. Right. So you sort of learn to say, is that working for me? Is that superego that plays in my head? Don't you ever do that. Don't don't you ever fly in an airplane. You will crash. Don't you ever fly in an airplane. And there are patients who can't fly in an airplane because their parents scared the bejesus out of them. Maybe I maybe I would like to try to fly in an airplane. See, you know, I think this might work because I really want to go to Italy or wherever you want to go. So that that's, again, a simplistic example. But that's the kind of thing. Is that working for me now? That's a, let's just spend some time on that one, uh, because uh, m- most people have moral values. Correct. They live their life by moral values. There's a right and there's a wrong. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is that th- it works or it doesn't work uh, is a better way of looking at the behavior that 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 you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if it works, what would that look like working? And if it doesn't work, what would not working look like? Well, there's a there's a thing called the repetition compulsion that Freud talks about, that these interjects that get laid into us from our parents, we just keep repeating them and we never question them. So in order for a person to change, they have to start questioning, does this work for me? And they really have to explore If I don't do it the same way, if I don't ever take an airplane, how would I do something differently? So they have to explore maybe step by step how they might change that, what the consequences of that might be. Will something terrible happen? 
What if you just went to the airport? What if you just went to the airport and looked at some planes in the sky and see if, how many of them crash? I mean, that kind of that kind of thing that the patient has to talk about the change behavior for a long time because it's frightening. This is what I was told works. And in my family, this worked, but I don't like it. I want to do something else, but I'm too afraid. So uh, talking cure again, <laughs> you just talk about all sorts of possibilities of what might happen. And this could take a year. This could take two years. And then eventually the patient says, I think I'm, I think I want to do this. And they do it and it works. And there's ego boosting. There's, I'm so much more powerful now than I was before. I've taken away some of that loop that plays in my head that says, don't do this ever, which has been closing my life in, restricting my life. You bet. I, I, it, it limits. It's like being in a mental prison. Of, Absolutely. Absolutely. Of I, 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 why, why is it that way? Because my mother said it was that way. <laughs> uh, have you ever opened the door and looked out? <laughs> no, it's dangerous out there. Right. Well, Touch the door. <laughs> there you Touch go. The door. There you go. Then turn the knob. All right. You're still alive. All right. You're still alive. Okay. Exactly. Peek out of the door. Uh, I, sure. That's great. That's I, I love talking with you, Barbara. This is this is a fun conversation for me. I, I have a wonderful process. I find the work to be so gratifying because when you see a person actually change and do something differently, it's tremendously gratifying to see. I hear you. I hear you. I'm I'm in the the public speaking business, mm -hmm. and when you watch people who are uncomfortable doing public speaking, and you're able to coach them with just a couple of things to do, and watch an immediate shift yeah. of perception. Yeah. And what I focus on is that there's a there's this sound that you make, and there's this sound that you make. And between the sounds, there's nothing. And if you can create the sound and create the nothing, you have control of the timing. And oh. when you have control of the timing, you have control of choice. And you ask yourself, well, who are you speaking for? I'm speaking for my identity. Well, then, if you can control the tongue of the identity, then you control the tongue of the ego. And so oh. now you can now you can consciously say, I love you, and, and build a positive, with even if you don't believe it. It doesn't make any difference. Vibrate the air with love and love will appear in the movie that you're watching. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's it's empowering to me and probably to you to see someone else feel empowered. Oh, yeah. It, it's like your purpose on life kind yeah. of thing. It's like, what are you here for? Well, right. you're, you're here to be of service. What kind of service? You know, what are you going to do? Something right. that will make people suffer less. Right. And, and be who they are. You want you really want to public speak, but you're terrified to do it. Find a way to get there because that's what you want to do. Yeah. Well, before we go, I, I do want to know more about the book that you've written, where people can get it. What's it about? Well, you shared a little bit of what's it about, but there might be some more things that you could you could share about your 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 novel. OK, Triskele is my first novel. I'm let's spell it. Novel. Let's spell it right. T-R-I-S-K-E-L-E. Triskele. Now, what's the title mean? Very good question. A triskele is an ancient Celtic symbol of three interconnected spirals. They're interconnected from the middle and three spirals come out of it. Okay. So three is a sort of sacred number. So there are three characters in the book, triskele, 
who are intimately connected, but they don't know it. They go through life and they end up meeting each other and they have a tremendously powerful effect upon each other. So that's sort of the premise of the book. One is a psychoanalyst and the other two are siblings who were separated early in birth because of family dysfunction. And they end up randomly in New York City and they both have a relationship with the psychoanalyst. And then you'll see what happens after. I don't want to give anything away. (laughs) But there's a powerful unconscious connection drawing them together. Now, the unconscious is not a word I have mentioned so far, but psychoanalysis rests on the belief that there are unconscious drives we have deep in our id that get expressed and expressed through our behavior and our actions. And the more we know what those drives are, the better we are at making conscious choices for ourselves that are good, that are good for us. The low, I, I, I told you earlier, I'm a sort of a Jungian guy. He calls it the collective unconscious. So that we have this space that we're all connected to. And the ego is like this thing on the surface, Uh, but there's a lot more to the iceberg than just what you see on the surface. Exactly. And and that to me is uh, the, the idea of, of what, interested in diving down and exploring right that 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 realm of unconsciousness right so at an unconscious level these two siblings really wanted to reunite and through all sorts of circumstances they were unable to and somehow unconsciously they both ended up in new york city is that a coincidence freud would say no and <laughs> i would say no as well since i made up the story <laughs> right so there's that. I, I would also say no. I I I look at that we're all we're, we're all connected. Mm-hmm. The illusion is that we're not correct. And yet the analogy that I use, Barbara, is the electricity and the light bulb. All the light bulbs look differently, but the electricity is the same. Right. And as you get into the body, you get into that electricity. You tap into that universal awareness in which there's no resistance to what is. Right. You are you're you're in love with. There's no judgment. Right. You, you don't you no longer judge. You you just love and appreciate and and your physical body is relaxed as you look at these things. You're not you are hey, you're but I'm 75 years old, so I've been practicing and working on it for a long time. And I just I'm 21. Yeah, you're 21. All right. <laughs> Woo-hoo. All right. <laughs> yeah, the unconscious is a powerful force that we that we communicate with each other, not knowing it sometimes. Not that it's voodoo or any weird stuff, but there are there are connections, emotional feelings we get from each other that are not at the conscious level that we're not aware of. So it's it's a powerful force, I believe. Could you talk a little bit about uh, Jung's archetypes as the major components of that stuff going on underneath the surface? Hmm. I guess the archetypes relate to universal experiences that people have and can relate to. I mean, I think one of uh, Jung's overarching themes is that life is a series of separation and individuation. And that's so true for all of us. Whatever archetype calls to us or that we stem from, we are sort of all universally going through this experience of being born, growing older, standing up straight on our own, and then eventually dying which is a lifelong experience of separation. So his idea of the universality of people's traits and characteristics and things that overlap. I mean, we we read Jung in my institute. We, we accept a lot of what he says. His work on dreams is enormously 
an enormous contribution. So there's a universality of all of our human experiences. As you said, the electricity is the same. It just pops up in, in different visuals for people and in different behaviors. And as you... One of the pro I keep mentioning on my podcast, everybody, I just I'm, I, I'm doing the Course of Miracles hmm. written by a professor from the uh, university in New York City. It was it was written by uh, it was uh, what do you call it? She it, it came through her. She didn't write it. It just channeled. She channeled it. And okay. it's 365 lessons. And you do one a day. And I'm, I'm two years into it. I haven't finished yet. So I'm not doing my one a day. <laughs> but but the very first lesson is to just look at the world around you, look at the room around you, look at all the objects and things in the room and, and tell yourself it doesn't have any meaning. Mm-hmm. And, and immediately you say, oh, no, it does. It, everything has a meaning. Yeah. But it, it creates that the, the, the thought that it doesn't have any meaning. And lesson number two is uh, now look at everything and realize that the meaning that you see comes from you, not from the object that you're looking at. Right. That is that anything in from your point of view? Can is that yeah, that's sort of like black and white thinking? People think it's this way or it's that way. If I don't, if a person bothers me and I don't scream at them, I just have to be quiet. Well, this gray area, there's something in between. You don't just have to be silent and suffer or scream at them and kill them. There might be something in the middle that you can do, some gray area, not sort of black and white thinking. This is what's gonna happen. So I can't do that. And then you're paralyzed sitting on all these bad feelings when you could say, you know, excuse me, but that kind of hurt my feelings when you said that. It's very, very different than patients will say this frequently. I didn't want to go off on the person. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend going off on anybody, but it would be nice if you could at least discharge your feeling in an appropriate way that they could hear. So that that reminds me of that, that it's not just this way or that way. There's a whole gray area in between. You might want to try (laughs) And d- discharge it in a way that they can hear it. So right. there's a discharge it. I, I discharged it, but did they hear it? Right. And and to me, part of part of it is the vibration that you discharge. That vibration, either it's one of a loving vibration, or it's or it's an attack thought defending right. the ego. Um, and to me, is a big difference between between the, right. hearing people speak. You know, most of them are defending their opinion and their and their right. position. Uh, right. And that's creating. Right. Know. And I ask people, what is your goal? Do you want to kill that person and the relationship? Or do you want to explain what you need for the relationship to continue? What's your goal? I love it. Well, thank you, Barbara. How do we get a hold of you? How can my audience, where can they buy the book and where can they go and, and can buy read more about you? You can buy the book and learn all about me at my website, which is bdamato.com, B-D-A-M-A-T-O.com. You can buy the book there. It's on Kindle and a, and a um, paperback version. And all of my contact information is there. And wonderful. it's a really nice website. It's got a lot of information. Wonderful. Wonderful. And all the information will also be included in the show notes. So when the podcast goes out, all that information will, will be there. Well, I want to thank you very much for sharing yourself with our audience today. Uh, Real, just really, really illuminating because you have so much experiential light to shine on the the subject matter that it makes it a very bright conversation. So thank Thank you for bringing brightness into our in our life today. 
Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Your, your ideas are very simpatico. I've really enjoyed it. Well, thank you very much, Barbara. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. And please catch us on the next great episode of the Mindful You podcast. And please share us with your friends and fellow travelers on the path.